You are listening to a podcast series, Human Rights in the 21st Century, a project featuring global champions of human rights. My name is Natasha Briski. I am a journalist and a podcaster from Slovenia, talking to you from Slovenia. And uh, with me is my co-anchor, fellow podcaster, commentator, and an excellent blogger, Aljas Pengobitans, joining me from Luxembourg. Uh, that is correct, uh, although I'm not joining you from North Pole, where you, Natasha, were once. Uh, as an unaccomplished explorer as you are. But today uh, we will continue our conversation on uh, human rights in the 21st century, as you uh, already explained. And uh, we have another eminent guest to talk to, Natasha. Absolutely. We are delighted to welcome uh, Ms. Yayanti Devi Balaguru, President of International Network of Liberal Women. Um, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much, Natasha, for having me. And hello, Aljas. So um, we are here to talk about the human rights issues, uh, also in connection with women's rights. And uh, you are joining us from Malaysia, right? That's right, Natasha. And just to start, as we did uh, with all of our podcasts, uh, now, could you describe uh, what is the situation uh, regarding the human rights in your neck of the woods and maybe how how it changed uh, um, or what was the influence of COVID-19 uh, in the past um, almost two years now? Natasha, Malaysia is actually one of the countries in the southeast uh, Asian region highly affected by the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of the number of cases. There was even a period in May 2021 when the country's average number of daily infections on a seven-day rolling average exceeded that of India due to the highly contagious Delta variant in April this year. White flags hang out from windows of ordinary Malaysians, cries of help from households for whom the pandemic has brought economic distress and even too little to eat. The COVID-19 cases have declined since then, but the threat of another surge remains given the emergence of new variants such as the Omicron and the waning efficacy of vaccines as time goes by. What we would like to, to ask you, whether Malaysia has observed a trend that many other countries uh particularly in western europe uh, have observed that there was a um pressure against uh the established level of human rights sometimes as a direct result of the pandemic and sometimes the pandemic was used as an excuse to try and further curb the the level of human rights is that something that has been going on in malaysia as well or was the effect different in fact, I think in the Asian region, uh, it is not uh, as uh, acute as it was in uh, the European countries. Uh, in fact, uh, more was being done for the people. And uh, together with the health crisis, the countries have been actually undergoing political crisis as well in the past years, especially in Malaysia, with the new prime minister's warning. So there was this political crisis that actually went uh, hand in hand during the pandemic time. So when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic in March 2020, uh, Mohidin Yassin uh, rose to power and uh, it was considered a political coup, which led to the unceremonious removal of the ruling Pakatan Harapan's coalition from the corridors of power. Then all throughout 2020 and in recent months, 
Moedin's hold to power was challenged by Pakatan Harapan and more importantly by factions within his own coalition. So in July 2021, recently, the United Malays National Organization, AMNO, withdrew support from the Prime Minister's Perikatan Nationals Coalition, triggering another round of leadership change. So it was more of a political uh, influence and political uh, issues that came hand in hand. And in August 2021, Malaysia's uh, King Al-Sultan Abdullah has named Ismail Sabri Yaakob as the country's new Prime Minister when Mohidin Yazin had to resign after losing majority support in parliament due to infighting among his political coalition. So Ismail's appointment marks the return of AMNO, which lost in the 2018 elections to the country's premiership. So actually at the moment, the 15th general election must be held in Malaysia by May 2023. But one positive development for the past years is that one party dominance appears to be over, and these votes actually well for the Malaysians' future democratic development. As you mentioned, in August, new prime minister was named. Uh, the previous one resigned due to mishandling of the country's COVID response. Does the new prime minister, in your opinion, means also new politics regarding human rights? Will they be high or higher on the agenda? Actually, as far as the human rights was concerned, uh, uh, as far as human rights is concerned, when uh, Mohidin Yassin was actually handling the pandemic, uh, there were a lot of uh, cries that there was a lot of uh, uh, of uh, human rights, especially against uh, migrant workers and especially uh, against uh, illegal migrants because there were a lot of uh, crackdown to curb the COVID-19 pandemic and uh, the target group happened to be illegal immigrants. And when there was uh, an announcement to say that illegal immigrants should come forward and register so that they can also be uh, counted and be vaccinated in the event when the vaccination was going to be given, uh, at that point of time, there were a lot of crackdown on targeted uh, enhanced uh, movement areas. And uh, these uh, immigrants were actually detained in uh, un- um, comfortable environment and also uh, didn't have proper uh, sanitary uh, facilities and it was overcrowded and the numbers of the COVID uh, actually became much higher. And uh, after the amnesty and all this period was over, most of them were actually deported. So that was actually, uh, I mean, a lot of us tried to government, the then government, to look into all these matters, but uh, at that time, it was, you can say it was mishandled. Um, you mentioned uh, migrant workers. Um, forgive my ignorance, but uh, if it is my understanding that uh, that is a persistent problem in the wider Asia-Pacific region. Uh, how does that um, combine with the concept of, of human rights, uh, social security, and and uh, I would imagine the onset of the pandemic uh, only made this problem worse. Yes, yes, yes. It definitely did because you see Malaysia depends on a lot of uh, foreign workers. First time when the pandemic uh, came into uh, effect in about March 2020, uh, initially the numbers showed that uh, this uh, coronavirus was actually 
being uh, infected by foreign workers. But after a few months, they realized that it is not necessarily from the migrant workers itself. And more, uh, how to say, more information was uh, given. And uh, everybody was then more reliant and more encompassing of, of the situation. And I think that that is when the the burden from the migrant workers workers shifted because they were actually looked on and treated on as if they were the 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 the, the cause of uh, the pandemic. But uh, during that time, I must say that the immigrants uh, were also detained and uh, they were just waiting deportation. And they were also not allowed to be deported because the country of their origin was also going through the pandemic and they couldn't travel to their countries and they were just detained in overcrowded and unbecoming conditions. Mrs. Balaguru, uh, Malaysia was recently elected to the UN Human Rights Council for the period of 2022 till 2024. Um, in your eyes, in your opinion, how significant is this for Malaysia? Uh, what's your plan? I comment on this appointment. I really think that Malaysia can do a lot, especially in the Asian region. And since Malaysia happens to be a major migrant destination, I'm very sure that Malaysia will definitely put forward whatever that we are working on and uh, ensure that uh, it can be taken up and acted on, changed, enforced, and make it a more friendlier environment for the migrants. When we speak uh, of the concept of universal human rights, um, Sometimes uh, there is a counter-argument that the Western perception of human rights is, uh, although applicable, maybe not completely applicable in a specific um, environment or setting, uh, for example, in a uh, developing world. Mm, would you say that uh, with regard to human rights, uh, Malaysia ha has... Um, different or should have different priorities than maybe uh, those that the European Union or the United States focus on? My personal view is uh, in certain countries in the Asian region, uh, despite us all ensuring that there should be a lot of freedom that uh, needs to be exercised and the rights of an individual has to have the liberty to be able to exercise, Unfortunately, uh, in certain countries, and especially in Malaysia, we do have a um, different view on a couple of rights. Like, for example, uh, in Malaysia, uh, we cannot outwardly campaign on LGBT rights. That's a taboo because... Uh, We also are religion and race-based. So if uh, this is something that you're not supposedly be able to campaign outwardly. So that is uh, one of those arms that uh, is not welcomed if any activist group wants to take it up. As far as uh, freedom of press is concerned uh, or freedom of expression is, is concerned, There have been uh, cases which uh, many people may have read because uh, there are cases where certain uh, expressions come under attack and it comes out that the allegations that 
this uh, freedom of expression has been uh, widely used uh, in the spread of false and seditious news or it's false news, then investigation papers are open and the freedom of expression is basically stifled. Identically, I think you must also have heard and read of freedom of the press as well, because there also uh, comes upon things when uh, something is reported and it, if it's not suitable, then uh, it becomes a misreport of the news, investigations on sedition, defamation, violation of communications, and the Multimedia Act comes into play. So to a great extent, uh, there are a lot of suppression uh, on freedom of press, freedom of expression, uh, freedom of uh, one's own uh, right for sexual orientation and gender identity. What about the women's rights? You are a politically very active woman. Um, what would you say about the women's rights in Malaysia and, and the broader region maybe? Uh, how safe or toxic is an environment in your neck of the woods today? Now, you regularly conduct programs on women's empowerment. Uh, when you talk to women, what are the issues that they most often um, emphasize or what are the challenges as they view it? Natasha, uh, in Malaysia, like I told you uh, earlier, I shared with you uh, that in Malaysia, we are a race-based party. That, thus, we have uh, religion-based as well. Malaysia is uh, has a Malay community who are of Islamic faith. And then we have the Chinese community and they are uh, Christians or Buddhists. Uh, and then we've got the Indian community. Hindus, maybe Sikh, Sikhism or Punjabis, and uh, we have others, uh, Christians and, and, and henceforth. So basically the three dominant races and the religions are the Islamic faith, the Chinese and the Hindus. Uh, and uh, when it comes to about the Islamic uh, faith, there are laws that actually uh, governs uh, the Islamic uh, faith, though in normal civil situations, they come under the civil law, but as far as family and uh, children are concerned, they come under the family law that is come under the purview of the Sharia law. Then you have the Chinese and the Hindu who come under the civil uh, civil purview as far as family law is concerned. So when it comes to religion, when uh, Malay wants to marry a Hindu, the Hindu person must actually uh, convert to the Islamic faith to, to become an Islam, to become Muslim, which I'm quite sure you, you are aware and most people are already aware. So when it comes to religion, uh, it becomes a, a, a topic for us to discuss because when uh, introducing new laws or change of laws as far as marriage and law reforms are concerned, especially when there is a discrimination where hereditary rights are actually uh, taken away when women are concerned and when uh, they ask us for help, you are actually handicapped basically because they are governed by the Sharia law. So you cannot actually give them any advice because it doesn't apply when the civil law is concerned. So when it's civil law and when it's uh, Islamic law, there is there is, seems to be a clash. And recently they tried to introduce some criminal uh, Islamic law as well, which uh, most of us actually sort of took it up until the federal court. 
to challenge that it should not be actually enforced, basically, because it's against the Malaysian constitution. But uh, the case got thrown out because they said that us taking the case up at the federal court uh, was actually not right because we were of not we were not of Muslim uh, Islamic faith, so we had no right to bring the case up to the federal court. So that's where the discrimination and there is this line where though you want to empower women and you want to tell them that they are also our sisters in the same cause, but because of the religion, there is a division. Uh, Mrs. Balaguro, you are also currently the chairperson of the CALD Women's Caucus. And as we said at the beginning, we would also like to hear uh, your thoughts on the situation of uh, women's rights in the wider region. Now, we uh, were able to read uh, a couple of weeks ago about the sentences of Aung San Suu Kyi, in Cambodia, just sentenced to four years. Um, now, uh, what would be your response? I mean, in the works that you do, you also uh, cover and follow what is going on in the region. Yes, Natasha. More than a week ago, Aung San Suu Kyi was sentenced to jail. The charges against her, which were filed after she was deposed via a coup d'etat, were widely dismissed as politically motivated. Sixth sentence is only the first in a dozen cases the military has brought against Suu Kyi since it seized power from a civilian government hours before a new parliament was due to convene in February 2021. In fact, uh, Natasha, uh, mm -hmm. um, at least uh, 354 opponents of the coup have also been sentenced to jail or to death, according to AAPP including Aung San San Suu Kyi's aide, Win Tian, who was sentenced to 20 years in jail in October. As a member of the CALD Executive Committee and the CALD Women's Caucus Chairman, Chairperson, I had the chance to meet both Aung San San Suu Kyi and Win Tian in person a couple of times. In fact, Suu Kyi is an honorary CALD individual member, while Win Tian represented the National League of Democracy, NLD of Myanmar, a number of times in the CALDI events, Council of Asian of Liberal Democrat events. Three months after Suu Kyi was released from house arrest, a CAL delegation, including myself, went to secretly visit her in a lakeside home in Yangon in January 2011. The visit led to a couple of CALD workshops in Yangon, targeting the NLD women's wing, trying to empower them, Natasha, and parliamentary candidates in the succeeding years. We have met uh, Win Tian, on the other hand, in the European Parliament in Brussels for the biennial uh, LD Cald meeting in June 2012. He related to us the long years he spent in prison. But I remember that we were all in awe on how he still was able to retain his jovial and positive disposition. He attended Cald events in Bangkok and Bali subsequently before he decided to slow down a bit on international travel. In the succeeding years, whenever Carl visits Myanmar, he remained to be our country, uh, our primary point of contact. It is actually most unfortunate that both Suu Kyi and Win Tian and many of their NLD colleagues are again in jail and Myanmar is back to square one insofar as the transition to democracy is concerned. I think that the international community, particularly the ASEAN, should not let Myanmar descend into civil war we should facilitate an immediate political resolution to the crisis based on democratic principles and values. Any compromises that forego these values would not work, as what the Myanmar people have made perfectly clear in the past months, Natasha. 
and uh, mm-hmm. touch on Senator Laila Dilema. Yes, please go ahead. You know, Senator Laila Dilema of the Philippines was marking her fifth year in detention in February 2022. Her detention is definitely politically motivated, having been one of the most vocal opponents of the human rights violations associated with Philippines uh, President Duterte's war on drugs. On paper, however, there are three cases charging Senator Dilema of engaging in illegal drug trading. Multiple cases were filed to ensure that she gets in prison. On 24 February, she was arrested. 2017, she was arrested based on a warrant of arrest issued in relation to one of the cases. In all the three cases, the charges does not even specify the kind and quantity of the alleged drugs said to have been traded. Under Philippine law, the imposable penalty depends on the kind and quantity of the alleged drug. Possibly for this reason, the charges against her were all subsequently amended by the Philippines Department of Ministry of Justice. Instead of charging her with illegal drug trading, she is now charged with conspiracy to engage in illegal drug trading. These amendments were made supposedly because of the weakness of the evidence against her. Against her. The judicial process on these cases is highly questionable, with no inmates uh, witness willing to admit participation in the illegal drug trade and thereby implicate falsely dilemma. The government started presenting drug evidence of drug trading against its own witnesses, even when impeaching one's own witness is not allowed under court rules, and even when these witnesses are not under trial and prosecution. In February 2021, one of the cases were dismissed by the court. The court found no evidence linking the senator to her co-accused. There was likewise no proof that the alleged senator uh, had any dealing, and that the alleged money or vehicles were received by her or used by her during the 2016 elections. In fact, uh, uh, Natasha, as a uh, As a Carl Women Caucus chairperson, I led a delegation of women leaders who visited Senator Dilema in a detention facility in August 2017. In that visit, we implored the Philippines Court to rule on the petitions of Senator Dilema in accordance with the right to fair and speedy trial, which is recognized in both the Philippine Constitution and the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights (ICCPR), where the Philippines. is a contracting party if that every day that senator dilema spends in jail as a political prisoner is an affront to human rights rule of law and public accountability fundamental principles that the philippines prides itself on as a democratic country and um just to um, put things in uh, context um, i understand there is a long running animosity uh, from uh, President Duarte to uh, Senator Lima, uh, the fact that his term is up and he is legally barred from running for re-election, do you think that plays a role? I really am rooting that it should play and it shall play a role since uh, the running uh, mates, uh, the running uh, nominations have already come out, and the elections in Philippines is in May next year. And I really, really hope that. LLP Liberal Party of Philippines uh, wins this election and makes a change. But maybe one final question uh, seeing all the challenges ahead do you remain or 
Do you see yourself becoming optimistic? Most times, I try to tell myself I must remain optimistic. There must be some light at the turning. So I will continue what I'm doing. And I really hope now with this uh, appointment to the UN and uh, hopefully there can be some changes in the next couple of years. Uh, and on that note, we would like to thank you, Mrs. Yayanti Devi Balagurum from Malaysia for being part of our podcast series, Human Rights in the 21st Century, and to tell us more about uh, what is going on regarding the human rights uh, in your part of the world. It's been a pleasure and we wish you all the best. Thank you, Natasha. Thank you, Aljas.